Hey friends, welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we seek to find culture biblically nuanced in Jesus, embodying responses to current day issues. I'm excited today because I have a friend, Lowell Hirschberger, on, and that concept of culturally aware Jesus embodying responses to current day issues. Sometimes we look at different social issues around the world today, and we can argue almost everything has two sides to it, right? And we, we have these binary arguments, you know, the right and the left. How do you alleviate poverty? How do you do social justice work? And, you know, is it even a thing that Christians should do or get involved in? Lowell Hirschberger is a, works as a social worker. I think he's actually let his social license lapse currently in, in the project or the, the role that he has. But He's trained in social work and in social sciences and has a real heart for helping people in New York City, particularly those who are needing to develop sustainable income and developing projects for them and and, um, education for further training and so forth. And it just through his work and through work like this, you discover the issues that culture deals with the issues that people in society deal with regardless of what we think is right or wrong like there are very real issues that we have to deal with and and what does it look like to embody Jesus in those situations and how can you enter and not just talk about doing justice or not just talk about caring for the poor or the homeless but actually do something about it and that's what Lowell's going to share today I'm excited to have him have this conversation with him and share it with you we talk at the very end we spend 15 i'm not even sure how long 10 15 minutes discussing the concept of gratitude particularly around racial justice um there there's some history where we have you know whether you think of native americans on reservations and how like they should be grateful that america is actually providing schools for them giving them funding for all these things or if you think of black people and and, you know at least they're not savages you know hunting for their own food and so forth and why are they ungrateful why they still want certain work of justice to be done that's been very damaging in the work of justice to culture and society to push that need for gratefulness but Lowell also has shared some thoughts on the importance of gratitude in the work of justice and particularly rather than like expecting other people to be grateful but just ourselves like having a grateful spirit for the people around us and for the community that that we are living in and so we share that at the very end and it that's available for members of Unfeigned Christianity on Patreon. If you'd like to access that expanded version, just click the link below or go to asherwitmer.com forward slash member and you can learn more about that. Without any more noise, let's get into my conversation with Lowell. Well, I'm excited to have on the podcast today Lowell Hirschberger from New York City. Welcome to Unfeigned Christianity, Lowell. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lowell and I have, well, we kind of know know each other's families from way back. I think it was just in 2020 through the restorative faith 
collective, uh, we kind of started mm-hmm. at the very least having conversations together and, and doing some events together. We've had the privilege, I guess we, we didn't quite make it to your house when we were in New York city mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, but we were able to have breakfast together and you, you were out to California and then also here in Colorado, we were able to see you. So it feels like we've been able to connect several different ways over the last few years. Yeah. yeah, it's been great. A gift through the pandemic, we got to know each other, so. Yeah, I, um, one of the, the reason I invited Lowell on mm-hmm. is because he is work, works as a social worker. Is that your title? Uh, it's uh, not. I got actually, that. Technically, I, I've I, I've let my social work license expire with the arduous uh, continuing education credits, so I'm not technically okay. I suppose a social worker. But I, I, um, my title is director of career and education programs. But it's it's the roots of social work. It's and I, I uh, I'm passionate about social work. Educated yeah. as a social worker. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes those who follow my podcast and, and blog are familiar with, especially in the last few years writing on uh, various aspects of justice and rate racial justice, social different forms of social justice. And sometimes we can have these conversations and it feels very theoretical or yeah. even theological or whatever. And uh, s- some questions that I've received and questions I've had myself are like, so what can we do practically, whether it's in relation to race and and just the dynamics part of that conversation or whether it's in relation to poverty and helping you know we can debate whether or not socialistic policies are helpful or not but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day like what are we doing as christians to be a part of caring for the poor and helping people i've always enjoyed hearing what what you're doing in your work in New York city. And then even just, we've had some conversations where I didn't really know what to do, how to help out. Um, especially when we lived in Los Angeles, some people, and you've, you've been a place of resources and just pointing me to different organizations that are out there that, that has been really helpful. And so I just thought it'd be fun to hear your story. Like what got you into social work? Mm-hmm. What all is that like? What, what is, you said you're director of current education programs. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's a great profession. I'm happy to be on here just to to make a pitch for if you're a young person and considering careers, it's a fabulous career option. I remember when I was in high school, I was kind of toying with what career to consider. And um, I remember um, noticing that I get bored quickly. And then hmm. I thought that if I go into social work, that would probably not be boring (laughs) and i was very right in that respect i haven't been bored since some 25 years later so um people are infinitely complex and situations are maddeningly uh, complex sometimes but beautiful at the same time and i've really enjoyed my career i uh, went to cedarville university for social work education in the 90s and then on to ohio state go buckeyes and for a master's degree in social work. And, and I've worked in a few different settings. I think one of the misconceptions about social work is that there, you know, there's sort of one picture. People often I'd be exposed to like one part of social work, whether it be child welfare and the adoption system or whether it be 
general welfare and the sort of public assistance system. But actually, social work is incredibly broad. There's so many different things. About 60% of counseling that's done in America is done by social workers now. So mm. it, there's therapists who are social workers. There's in community development people like me who focus on economic issues and community empowerment. And there's, yeah, just almost every field you can imagine where there's people in need, there's social workers. And mm -hmm. I've been really blessed to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, um, where we live now is Canyon city, Colorado and close to new horizons ministries, which focuses mm -hmm. on helping people that are in prison and then children that whose parents are in prison and different, a lot of foster families or families with adopted kids. And I've heard various stories of like how crucial that social worker is in the process yeah. and how, whether it's a good experience, bad experience, and, and even just, yeah, I'm sure it's pretty stressful. Well, it's, and it's beautiful to have a Christian in social work. Cause I think, you know, what better way to be on the hands and feet of Jesus than to be in situations where people are in pain, people are in, in, in frustration, people are confusion, people are angry. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, getting in there and being in those places, I think is just so important for, for anyone who cares um, to be in. So, yeah. So what specifically do you, do you do sure. now? So um, I, I, like I said, I, I got into social work 25 years ago and I've worked in a couple of different roles. One is a teen pregnancy prevention director. Um, I worked in mental health settings, hmm. but for the last 19 years, I've worked for Cypress Hills Local Development Corporation, which is a nonprofit in this, this part of Brooklyn, one of the lower income areas of Brooklyn. And our mission is to revitalize this community, to really help the community uh, be better in many ways. And so my role is one of the division directors, one of six division directors. And so I oversee a portfolio of programs really designed to help alleviate poverty through creative mm -hmm. solutions. So we have five different tracks of job training. So healthcare, technology, construction, transportation and food service. And then, so that's sort of the basic traditional job training, state voluntarily um, funded combination of government and foundation, corporate individual gifts. And then I run a internship program for high school students in the summer. We have about 800 youth that participate in that program where we place them in the community with businesses and the city pays their wages. So in New York city, every neighborhood has somebody like me and that that runs this summer youth employment program they call it it's the largest youth program in the in the country and mm -hmm. so for this neighborhood that's one of the things i do and then we also do some work with businesses we have a community kitchen where culinary businesses can that are home-based we have a lot of home-based businesses in this neighborhood you know in new york everybody's got a hustle right mm -hmm. everybody's got a little something something on the side and so a lot of caterers a lot of people that make you know one thing or another from their country and sell it on the street. So this is a licensed kitchen where they can come out of what we call the shadow economy into the traditional economy where they can get licensed and have the supports of what it means to run a, run a business in America and grow their business and get financing, et cetera. And then we do a, we have a merchants association and business consulting where we work with businesses to, you know, address issues of, you know, random fines. One business came in with 
they got a fine because their their freezer was too cold. Not <laughs> so there's yeah. random regulations that that step in the way of businesses being effective. So it's really just a lot of different creative solutions around poverty mm-hmm. that I've been able to develop and be part of. It's been really exciting. That's why I've stayed there for now 19 years is because um, I've been given a lot of flexibility to create mm-hmm. things and to, to get creative and to partner with foundations and corporations and donors, government agencies to sort of put the pieces together and, and make it available for the neighborhood. So I've had a lot of fun. A lot of this, I started as assistant director of youth and family services, working in after school programs. So one thing led to another and here I am now. Yeah. Share a little bit more, um, the, the whole concept of a shadow economy and like people, what is shadow economy? And then why, like, why is that a need to, you know, to help, like, why would people not just go do what they need right away? Sure. Yeah, no, that's that's a very interesting concept. I mean, New York, I think, is unique in that it has a really, really high immigrant population at any given point in the history. It's, I think, probably pretty much always been at least about a third immigrant population and another third that's like one generation away from being an immigrant. And then the other third is longtime New Yorkers. So it's, it's a transitional place. It's a place where people come in, pass the Statue of Liberty and make a life. And part of what that what that involves, a lot of times people bring skills, but they may not bring them in the way that they can use them here. Like, for example, they might have, you know, had a business in their country making, you know, flan, let's say, or salsa or a restaurant or something. And the regulations in New York City are very different in terms of health and Department of Buildings and Department of Fire Department, all these different regulations that go into place. And so, a lot of people don't have the time or financing to sort of set up an established business with a brick and mortar location. And so they're just very hardworking and entrepreneurial and they go about, you know, doing what they do and selling the products. And, and so it's a, it's a very inspiring and vibrant um, energy that comes with the immigrant population. And I'm really excited about that. And it really mm-hmm. warms my heart a lot of times, but the challenge is w- with it is that, it's really hard to make a, a real living with that because you, it's hard to get financing, for example, right? Or it's hard to get to go to scale. You know, you might mm-hmm. be making something out of your home, but you only have one stove, one oven. You get a big order of, you know, 500 pies. You can't fill it, right? It's just not realistic. So really being able to go to scale and getting an income that, that to raise a family on requires that you kind of get educated on the various licenses that are required and and then also to get the financing that you need to be able to borrow money to get a brick and mortar location you know you need to have show documented income right so a lot of times it's cash economy right is part of the shadow mm-hmm. economy so there's not the documentation so just getting the that income documented is really important to get then the financing that you need to, to expand so it's it's hard and it's complex unfortunately but you know we've had there's about 300 businesses on Fulton Street alone, which is one corridor in our community. Many, most of them are immigrant-owned, mom and pop, really grassroots kind of businesses with two, three, four employees that are in the process. I mean, some of them are still in the shadow economy, I would say, and yeah. some aren't. But they need that technical assistance. And there's quite a bit of impetus. I think the New York City recognizes the value that this population brings. It's always brought to New York City. And so figuring out ways to help them, you know, 
transition to the formal economy is is something the city is invested in doing as well. They're not trying to find them out of existence, you know. So it's 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 exciting to be that middle person. Yeah, I I think of compared to LA, and I don't know if this is unique to LA, but how many immigrants in New York City would be like they they entered illegally some way or another? Because uh, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, because that I mean that's a big aspect of shadow economy in LA sure. is I, I sometimes I hear people like oh they paid for you know ten thousand dollar vehicle cash and they assume it's drug money, which kit could be, but yeah. a lot of it is people in that the shadow economy where like maybe they were just trying to get. Like it, it's really hard to get into the U.S., especially from Mexico or a country in, in South America. Yeah. And maybe they crossed illegally. Maybe they were fleeing back in like 2018, 2019. A bunch of Syrians were Im immigrated. I always get it mixed up. Is it emigrated or immigrated when they come in because of the war? And so we had a family where he, he she was a doctor and he was a architect, like a pretty mm -hmm. high up architect, but they didn't have any licensing or anything here in the States. And so he was doing day labor job at a, some kind of metal manufacturing thing. And so just kind of understanding some of those dynamics that cause people to, yeah, they have these skills and they go under, under in the shadow, I guess you could say. In yeah. Order yeah. No, that's, that's huge. That, that story is not unique and it repeats itself, you know, many, many times. I know a person who was, you know, who, you know, was a major, you know, senior administration of a large university in another country, 15,000 students. And he was in senior administration and now he's working, I think, security guard, maybe at a homeless shelter, you know, like oh, wow. it's, it's really sad that that talent can't be utilized. And, and he, and, and in terms of the percent that are able to work, uh, versus undocumented folks, um, I don't know what that percentage is, but I mean, a lot of who we work with are documented, I'd say the, the, partly because of our programs and the way the funding works, we're mostly, you know, permitted to work with documented folks. So we actually, you know, don't even reach, you know, the, the, the biggest need really is undocumented for sure. And we had a, we did have a, a construction career open house uh, last week, specifically for Spanish speakers that were not documented. And there was an overwhelming need. It was like, the office was packed out, probably 50 wow. people, 60 people showed up. So there's that, the, the life of an undocumented person, I don't care what the, you know, what the pundits say, it is a hard life and nobody mm -hmm. in America would want that for themselves or for people they love. Nobody's getting a free ride. I can tell you that from personal experience. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really tough and only the most resilient and hopeful and hardworking people can survive that status. So I feel some kind of way when people talk disparagingly about that population, just because I know lots and lots of people in that category and they're some of the best, hardest working people, you know, I'm going to back up a little bit and just th this whole concept of social work. Now you're, you're a Mennonite, right? An Anabaptist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what, yeah. How in light of, so we don't get involved in politics, right? Or we don't. Mm -hmm. And I think, so maybe this exposes like some misconceptions of what social work is, but I'm curious what, 
was that, did you ever bump into any obstacles, whether with your parents or your church or whatever, like as mm -hmm. you considered that field or yeah, what was that journey like? Yeah, as a yeah I think I, I didn't know what I was, I was getting into. I was really fortunate to go to a Christian college, evangelical college that um, really, you know, in every social work paper we wrote, we, we, we there was a por portion where we, we, we would write, so how does this relate to my Christian beliefs and how does this integrate? And we talked a lot about integrating faith and practice. There's the North American Association of Christian Social Workers that I've been involved in. So I've had the benefit of some real mentoring and some real coaching in, in regards to, to, to this, you know, social justice work and how it relates to faith. And I've actually, you know, and I've had, but I've had people ask me, you know, how can you be a Christian social worker or can you be a Christian social worker? Is that even a thing? And it, and it always kind of stumps me because I mean, my faith is why I'm a social worker, right? Like yeah. it's not in spite of it's, it's the whole point. And I, yeah. I, I was just in preparation for this, I was just jotting down kind of like some of the, what I would consider like main tenets of social work, like sort of the Holy grail of social work, like what is social work as a profession kind of believe. And I came up with three things. I don't, this isn't very well thought out, but number one, in, inequality is a thing, right? <laughs> and that individuals deserve respect, deserve to be listened to, deserve to be supported just by virtue of being a person, right? And systems matter that, that systems affect behavior. And all three of those, I could, you know, this isn't a place for a sermon, but I could easily articulate how all three of those are not only supported, but actually kind of, I see Christianity as the basis for those three, mm. you know, the value of the individual, the image of God, right? It's mm. just right there that everybody deserves respect. I don't care who they are. I don't care what situation it's in, you know, that. And so coming from that basic tenet of valuing people to me, you know, is the essence. And I, and really, I haven't had that many sort of conflicts between my sort of religious beliefs and social work. I just, I just feel like, you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is love your neighbors. I mean, but loving God and second is loving your neighbor. And I think in my career, I've tried to just do that. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you love your neighbors yourself. That's kind of what you do in social work is just loving your neighbors yourself and yeah. kind of just focus on that. And everything else is, as Jesus would say, you know, less weighty matters. And I just try to focus on, and kind of one way I think about it is like, until I do that perfectly, I have no business like going down into the other ones so much. And I haven't done that perfectly yet. So I'm still working on the, I've still gotten to the, you know, I'm still stuck on the first and second commandment, I guess yeah. you could say. And so I try not to get in, you know, if people ask, or, you know, if, if there's, you know, a reason to sort of get into other issues, sure. But I think love is the essence of who God is. And I think is the essence of what good social work is, is love. And yeah. so that's, that's why it's worked so well for me, I think. And I, and, and I, and I, and I cringe when I feel like people get politics or other things kind of wrapped up in that, that kind of like derail it. It's, it's, it, to me, it's indicative of, of not, not keeping love at the center of who um, God is and, and, and what he wants us to do in this world. Mm -hmm. You're saying you cringe when other social workers get politics and all that mixed up or just people in general? Well, both sides, actually. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think there are both sides. I think there's an element of social workers that 
Yeah, I think there's actually this is this is a whole concept we could talk about for a while. But the there are elements of what I would call the extreme right and the extreme left that actually, to me, look a lot like each other, right? Hmm. Where they're where they're kind of devolved into this notion of 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 us versus them, and there's an enemy out there, and it's the other side, and my job is to defeat the enemy, right? But I think you know if you look at Martin Luther King or any of the older, more foundational voices in social work, they didn't really see it quite so dualistically like that. Like they they saw every person as a person of value, and even even you know the opponent that you might be advocating against is a person who who has value and is is worth listening to and and has wisdom, frankly, to be understood. And so we get, I think, part of the the tragedy of the last you know, what, four or five years here in, in the political environment is that we've become more, you know, more polarized both. And I see that again on, on the radical right and the radical left, which I've, I think I've both been exposed to actually here in New York. Yeah. And I think it's so easy to fall in the trap of some of these conversations. It, it feels like, it feels like it's amplified the last couple of years. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, or if we're just kind of immersed in <laughs> It seems like there's conversations that like when you read the scriptures, it seems fairly clear that Christians should care about them, but then you have them also as national political conversations that are from a different angle. And so it, it feels hard to in the Christian world to navigate that because we've, we've gotten so yeah. immersed in the the right left politics of it all. And, and that's why I enjoy talking with you and other people like two of my siblings are n nurses and sometimes through the pandemic and everything, like even medical perspectives have become politicized and you like talk mm -hmm. to people who are actually in these fields and you realize like there's a whole bunch of nuance to it all that yeah. is just, yeah. Hey friends, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Dwell app. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dwell Audio Bible app, but this app is phenomenal. It, it's changed my life in several different ways. As a Bible college student, I do tremendous amounts of Bible reading throughout the semester, more than I normally do. And I'm not a fast reader. And so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the Dwell app. One, one of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative, reflective music played in the background of the reader. So it's not dramatized. Some, some audio Bible apps are dra dramatized and that's a little, I don't know, not my cup of tea. But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent or a... Well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework, but also I have found, sometimes I'll be listening to Audio Bible as I commute someplace or as I'm doing some other work, 
or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just, it's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my air, AirPods and listen to the Dwell app is an incredible way to start my morning, just in peaceful worship, meditation. I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it. I personally think you should read and hear it both, but that's one thing I like about Audio Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before. I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something, and I can't say enough good about the Dwell app. And so if you would like to take your meditation, your Bible reading to another level, you can also, if you're not able to sleep at night, you can put in your AirPods and and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way. I've used that at times as well. But you can start for free. There's a link in the description below, or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan, which I have, and it's to me it's very much worth it. Just in the way, a couple things: the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view, a fresh experience with scripture, and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework. It's been very helpful for me. I have two questions. I'm not sure which one should go first. One is what are some challenges you've faced and then what are some lessons you've learned? And maybe we'll start with the challenges. Sure. This afternoon I was at the office and I spent three hours doing some work that has no bearing on people or goodness or God or anything. (laughs) It was, it was, I call it administrivia. Um, And so they're in social work there's always a good portion of the time, I'd say maybe a third or so of my career, where I do things just to keep the government agencies happy or just to mm-hmm. document, you know, things. And it, and it feels very, very bureaucratic and very frustrating and very much like a waste of time. And, and so that's frustrating. And I think that's that's just part of, you know, working in these kind of disparate systems. You sort of have this this large bureaucratic government system that's, you know, has pledged to help or wants supposedly to help or the political leaders say they want to help, but the solutions are misaligned with the, with the community. And so I always tell my staff, I'm like, there's these two big boulders, there's the resources and then there's the community and we're the little tiny person sitting in between. So if you feel squeezed, (laughs) it's it's for good reason i think navigating systems navigating bureaucracy trying to connect solutions to needs you know i think is the quintessential work of a social worker and and in that there's always frustration in that there's frustration just you know one funder will give you a thousand dollars per student to serve another funder will give you three thousand another five thousand and for all of them you're sort of beholden to the same results and you you take it all because you need the money but it just doesn't make sense and it's really frustrating and exhausting to kind of like put all those pieces together so you have to have an appetite for complexity and doing those so so that's that's a big challenge in the sector and i think people in lots of places would 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 resonate with that in terms of social work and it's just one of those things you just kind of i always say it's like even tom brady's got to tie his shoes to go to the super bowl so you got to do those basic things if you're going to play 
the game. Yeah. Unfortunately, that takes about a third of my time, especially in administration, which is what I do. So other challenges, I think, you know, when you when you have needs that you can't meet, right? So yeah. we're always we're always faced with situations where what we have doesn't doesn't work or doesn't isn't enough. You know, where you have a person who does well, who's, you know, gone gone through the program, but then just, you know, gets lambasted by a family member that, you know, pulls him out at the last minute and makes him, you know, provide childcare or something. I don't know. Just there's always situations where you where you do your best, you think you're making a difference, and then it just kind of falls flat on the face. And I I, I remember the the song that Martina McBride sings about uh, doing it anyway always resonates with me because it's mm. it's it's sometimes you just you build it you know you do the, what you think you, is going to be helpful a storm comes and blows it all the way and you just start over again and mm. you have to have that mindset of that it was worth it anyway even if there's no you know great monument you know to show for it or not the results that you want to do and and I think actually the Christian the Christian worldview is super helpful in this respect because, you know, God noticed, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, God noticed and you work as unto the Lord, right? And so everything you do is worth it and has meaning, even if, you know, you don't see the results or you don't see the results you want. And so I remember my mom used to say, when she was alive, she used to say, you know, our job is to be faithful. And I think mm-hmm. that mantra is super helpful in social work is that, we're faithful. Sometimes we're successful. Sometimes we're not, but God calls us to be faithful and and leave the results with him. Yeah, that's really good. I was just, as you were talking, I was just, you know, you've been at this 25 years, 19 years there at Cypress, Cypress Hills or Cypress Park. Mm -hmm. I always get, um, in LA, we had a Cypress Park. So I get (laughs) mixed up. What keeps you from getting burned out or have you gone through burnout like that? that thing of like putting a lot of energy into something and then, then just watching it kind of fall apart. Like that can be extremely wearing on vision and yeah. just energy. Yeah. yeah. It has been, I, you know, take God's commands for rest seriously. Hmm. There's a reason he said that right about rest. And I try to remind myself that I'm not the savior. <laughs> That's hmm. helpful. <laughs> you know, it's easy to do this work and think that you're going to make, you know, you're going to make it, you're going to do it right. Right. Other people didn't tried this and didn't do it well, but you're going to do it right. I remember actually one, one thing that I thought early on a couple of years in here, this has been a real kind of saving thought for me is that, cause I really felt called here. Right. Like I feel like God called mm-hmm. me here and, and I was here a couple of years and I was like, what, is this what you call me to? Why'd you call me here again? And then the thought crossed me is like, and it was almost like God said, maybe I called you here to teach you something. Maybe you're not here to save this community, right? Like maybe Hmm. you're not here to make a difference. Maybe I just called you because I wanted to do a work in you. And maybe you're not really here for this community. (laughs) And that was kind of a little wake up call, but it was, it was actually a very beautiful and peaceful thought. Cause I'm like, God, what are you teaching me in this situation? Right? I'm not the solution for this community, right? You're the solution. And, what what are you teaching me in this situation? And I think that's where burnout comes from, essentially, is when we try to take God's place and we try to do, you know, take God's role. And naturally, we can't do it. And so it's, it's discouraging. So I think that's more than anything has been one of the key things. So like recognizing what my role is, is that I'm, you know, Martin Luther King said the 
arc toward justice is long, but it bends towards no. I, I forget. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up. But the whole thing about the arc being long, but it bends towards justice, right? Yeah. That you know, I have to think about that. It's like okay, I'm just I'm just leaning in, right? I'm just a part of this thing. It's 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 a long thing. It's it'll go on after I'm gone. It, it started long before I was here. I'm just one little piece in this grand plan that is leading towards towards God's plan for this universe. Yeah, that's good. What do you feel? I was thinking about this too, as you were talking about the bureaucracy and everything, but in a world run by secular governments that really are kind of ultimately selfish in many ways, like how do you, is it possible to do justice in within that system or like how is is it always going to end up coming up short and and how do you navigate that or yeah i i don't think i i think i think again you get discouraged and and throw up your hands when you think about like as if my job is to fix everything right mm -hmm. so it, it it's actually very important to think of yourself as just that little part right mm. and so it's yeah you're saying i mean I, I think that's a good question right like you know so you're in you're in dysfunctional systems you're in a government that is not going to provide what people need you're you're in this you know corporate you know i get corporate money right from big banks that are on the other hand, are doing horrible things in other parts of the world. So you're in this in this kind of dysfunctional system, right? And I think the the importance is to recognize the smallness of your role and yet the greatness of that, right? Like mm. that you're you're doing something, right? And like the classic story of the man with the starfish on the beach, right? There's thousands of starfish, and he picks up one every you know, 200 that he passes and throws it into the, into the ocean. And he says it, it made a difference for that one. And I think recognizing both the smallness and the greatness of the work is what helps you keep on going. Yeah, that's good. That's I'm learning things about life and ministry and work, even in non social work, because mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think it's so tempting for us to view. And I don't know if this is like our day and age, or if this has always been, but like, we want to be the hero. We want to be mm. the hero of the story, whatever work we're in. And that that's actually, like you said, the kind of the recipe for burnout, as opposed yeah. to just recognizing yeah. our place. And yeah, there's a there's a really nice picture I have in my office that I that I like and it. And, and I, I'm sure there's some people are kind of like, what is that? But it's it's a picture of three young girls that are huddled together in a tight huddle facing each other with their backs to the observer. And it helps me remember that, that I'm not the one that's giving life here, right? Like they're, they're, they're supporting each other. And it's kind of like my work is done when I see people supporting each other and when I see people connected and people getting um, support from each other. So again, taking yourself out of the center of the story, is really important. I think uh, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the story and, and, and we're just not that powerful. Yeah, that's good. Those are some things that you've learned in light of some of the challenges and so forth, but I'm curious, yeah, what are some lessons 
you've mm-hmm. learned or even just the way your perspective has changed in, in light of what you've seen and experienced in your, in your work? Yeah, I think another one that I would say that's it's a thought I had early on, actually the very first time I was here and I've really held on to over and over again is this thought that you earn respect not by being like someone, but by respecting them. So in other words, uh, you know, I'm no swipe boy from the Midwest. I'm coming to 99% people of color, New York City, Brooklyn, and I'm trying to think about how to fit in and how to be effective and how to how to get respect, you know, from the teens that I was working with. And early on, I, w- I, I, I had this thought and it's really held on to is that you don't you don't have to be like a person necess- in, in, in the sense of like, know, the, know all the lingo or know all the, you know, the latest thoughts or, you know, talk the right way or whatever, even say the exact right words, right? It, but it's about really respecting people and that people, when you respect people, they respect you, right? And be and being a constant learner, right? Like, I feel like I, I am a learner every single day. And I think that's that posture of learning, I think is really core to both my faith and social work that I don't know it all and that, and, and isn't that great? You know, it's cool because I get to learn every single day and everybody's perspective is different and everybody has a story that's different and everybody has experiences that have led to them feeling and thinking the way they feel and think, and it makes sense to them. Right. So just stopping and just really being curious and learning, I think is really one of the pieces of social work and, and my faith that I that I really hold on to that I think is really important for all of us to do. It doesn't, you don't have to be a professional social worker to do that. And I yeah. think the people that have made the biggest impact on me is people that have been, you know, warmly curious of, hmm. of, mm-hmm. of me. And I frankly don't do that great of a job like that. I don't want to, don't think I do that really well. Usually I'm busy trying to make some bureaucrat happy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but when I'm on my good days, I remember that and try to listen, you know? Yeah. I think that's one thing I've learned. Were there any assumptions that you brought into whether, whether it's the, the field of social work or specifically uh, New York city and different issues that you deal with there that you were kind of proven wrong or like you had to adjust in that? I think, I think I'm, I'm constantly testing my assumptions. I actually had a meeting this week with some of our businesses and I, I had to kind of think like, wait a minute, in what way am I just thinking that this would work better because it makes more sense to me or in what way is this really important? So I think I'm constantly testing my assumptions and I, and I find that it's still, I mean, you know, 19 years later, I still bump into things as like, yeah, you know, I thought that would work because that's the way I would do it, but that's not the way they would do it or this person, you know, and, and, and recognizing and not just me versus the community, but like, different parts of the community, like this person would see it this way, this person sees it this yeah. way, this person sees it yeah. this way, and just recognizing all the multiple perspectives. And, and I, and I do think, yeah, there's lots of assumptions. I feel like I'm constantly testing my assumptions and questioning, you know, I'm trying to think of like specific ones, but well, even, even the presence of graffiti, <laughs> that's a good example. Mm. So my assumption is graffiti is bad. Right. And and I do think it is, it says something negative most of the time, but 
you know, that's one where I've, I've had to kind of like, well, what does it accomplish exactly? Right. Like, what does it really say? And, you know, one of the things we're dealing with now in our community is skyrocketing, you know, house prices over 30% of our community pays more than half of their income in rent. Right. So when you pay half your income in rent, that's, you know, you don't think about it until you're in that situation, but yeah. it's a really hard yeah. way to live. And so I, I, I've actually just in the last couple of months, I've been thinking about that. Like maybe some of this graffiti is not so bad after all, maybe it, maybe it puts some of the gentrification on, on pause. I don't know. Um, or, or re related to that, actually, as the, as the merchants association, we paid last year, we paid a lot of money to get people to come and you know where the subway train has like these pillars that come down to the street yeah. and then people people put uh signs on those like they'll put like apartment for rent and whatever some little advertisement for something that they're doing whatever and it it, it gets unsightly because it's you know put on with tape and then it gets wet and falls off and and so as the mm -hmm. merchants association that i was coordinating we we put quite a bit of money into paying guys to go along and clean those off and to repaint them and make it look nice again. Right. So fast forward a year later, they're almost all covered again. Right. I noticed yeah. that the other day I was like, man, you know, like, what do we do? Do we pay more money and get this cleaned off again? Or, you know, and then I was just got to thinking, I was like, well, maybe, maybe that's our community bulletin board. Right? Maybe that is the way yeah. our community communicates with each other. Maybe we do want to have a place on every corner where you can say that your pet is lost and that they should return it. You know, like maybe that's not such a bad thing to have, you know, a, a you know, apartment for rent with, you know, maybe we yeah. could, you know, because if we have all those cleaned off, then we should maybe get like a community bulletin board or something. Then there's another expense, right? So Maybe we should just let some things happen. The way they happen. So, yeah. so little things like that. I think you were constantly testing assumptions and like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was just, I like the clean look, but maybe the community wasn't so much in favor of that after all at the end of the day. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Any, anything more that just you want to share? I, I'd like to dive into a little conversation around gratitude in the work of justice, but yeah. Is there any, any yeah, last I think I, I, I'll share one more story around uh, racial justice that I, that was really impactful for me. So we had several Black Lives Matter events, you know, that that in our community and we're kind of wrestling with how to respond and what does our community want. And I, as convener of the Merchants Association, of course, it was an important issue, right, for our merchants and thinking about safety and thinking about our relation to the police. And I actually sought out one of my colleagues, African-American, and just talked really frankly about what I'm struggling with because I feel like hmm. on one hand, I want to advocate with the Black Lives Matter folks. On the other hand, I have merchants who are also people of color, who are also, who are concerned and wanting more police presence or wanting protection and, and don't want the police defunded. And I, you know, and I said, what do I do? You know, I'm trying to find a, I'm trying to decide a position on this. <laughs> and she was really powerful and, and supportive. She said, maybe it's not up to you to find a position on this. Maybe, hmm. maybe your role is to, is to encourage the voices that you're hearing, to encourage those merchants to speak 
their concerns, to encourage the young people in your programs who are on the other side of this argument uh, to speak their concerns and to bring them together and have real dialogue about solutions. Uh, what does it take to live together in peace and safety in our community? And, and to bring the police together, because I think that's part of our, our role is to, is to uh, as a nonprofit, we're often seen as, as a convener. And it just, it was really a powerful conversation. And I think it, it, it actually helped me to relax a little bit and mm. think that, you know, communities really are capable of wrestling with these issues. And it's not up to me, the white guy, to figure out the solution on this and that there's people of color on both sides of these rallies and they both have legitimate points. And I think as reconcile, you know, the Ministry of Reconciliation, I think, is about bringing people um, into places where there can be dialogue and where there could be um, some listening and some new solutions. And we've had, you know, several meetings with the precinct here during that time and since. And some really, really cool things are, are happening. And I, and it, you're not, it's not going to make the news, yeah. but I think that's where Christians too can't need to avoid getting caught up in the rhetoric and the, and the headlines and to talk to real people on the ground that are experiencing these various things and to be part of facilitating, if anything, dialogue just by showing a spirit of listening, right. Mm. And by showing a spirit of, curiosity. And that's really what people need is curiosity. And, and I enjoyed my role as sort of the professional in the group in the way of like, as a social worker, like my role is, is not to have the solutions. My role is to, is to connect the dots and to bring the right people and the people from city government and precinct and bring the people into the room so that we can, we can have these conversations. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really good because it's we get so focused on our positions and then we'll use like a person of color who says, you know, something that sounds like right wing or, you know, and, and have them fight against each other when when really they're all addressing felt issues like there's yes. issues are real and we all like, it's not about like who's right or wrong, but like how coming together and how, how can we navigate yeah. through them? We're yeah. part of real solutions on a real, on a real level. I, I get, I, I really, I'm, I'm even, even the other night, the state of the union was on and I was like, I don't even want to watch. I don't care anymore. <laughs> like I used to be glued to those things, you know, like yeah. I don't care what he says. It doesn't matter. What I care about is what the business on my block, you know, owner is saying or what the young person on my street is saying yeah well thank you Lowell, for taking the time to have this conversation i know yeah. it's getting late for you on the east coast especially but you you uh i don't know if it's just a way of de-stressing if it's a hidden dream or um i always appreciate whenever you write on your <laughs> blog you you have a good way with words is that something you do actively? I haven't seen anything recently. Have I mit just missed it, or I, are you? I um, well, first of all, I'll say I'm grateful for you, Asher, and all the writing you do. I feel like you, you, you do amazing and have a really powerful role in our in our churches around your writing. 
I, I, I do like to write. I've always liked to write. The, 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 uh, in social work, if you want to get into social work, you got to write. <laughs> I, I, one semester, I had a stack of papers that was about this thick. Oh, wow. our, our professor told us, we're doing this because you, you need to be able to write when you're in social work. You got to document everything and propose stuff. And, but, mm-hmm. but I do think it's powerful. And I think we should all try to find our voice, right? In whatever way that happens. And for me, that's, that, is, that is writing. I enjoy writing. It helps mm-hmm. me get my thoughts that's down and i think i think everyone should find something where they can express themselves yeah that. thank you Appreciate what's it. the what's the name of your blog again it, it's lajourney.net and everybody asks what does that mean and i'm not even sure what it means i just randomly picked it. So it's lajourney.net i'm not going yeah. to la i'm not on the journey to la i'm i like new york <laughs> but i i it's LAJourney.net. LA Journey. So if people want to go peruse his writings, LAJourney.net. But he's he's lives in New York. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for the time. Thanks for sharing with with us today. Thanks so much, Astro. Unfeigned Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is The Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.